Hello and welcome to Amplify. On this week's episode... Tokyo has a very unique sonic signature. It, it sounds very different to, to Dublin, or it sounds very different to other European cities. Anna Murray on living and studying no theatre in Tokyo. And... The act of going out with a recorder or any sort of recording device and headphones and pressing record and having your surroundings amplified really like amplified and becoming this completely different sort of presence with the world around you. Composer and sound artist Sean O'Dolly on his latest work with field recordings. This is episode 36. I'm joined once again by CMC director Yvonne Ferguson. How's it going Yvonne? Good, Jonathan. Enjoying this um, great burst of spring weather that we're having at the moment and just appreciating every minute of it. Yep, indeed. It's dry and there's not too much wind about, uh, which is good for all. So we have conversations with two composers this week, Sean O'Dolly and Anna Murray. And both of these composers give some really interesting insights into their current work, don't they? Yeah, these are two really interesting and, and very kind of stimulating thoughts that come through these interviews, Jonathan, about their current practice, both Anna and Sean. And, you know, one based in Kerry, one based in Tokyo. Uh, but of course, Anna coming also from a rural background in, in County Mayo. And um, I was interested about Anna sort of balancing the th- three areas of her life that she talks about with the piano and then the the no theatre that she's, um, uh, the, the study she's undertaking while in Japan. And then and electronics and field recordings. And then also with Sean, this kind of balance and integration of, you know, writing for acoustic instruments. He has this whole series called Landscapes and the the field recordings that he has made. So lots of kind of connection with place for both of them, really, as we'd expect um, in a discussion uh, where, you know, field recordings are, are brought into the mix. So I um, certainly felt um, sometimes like going on a, a little holiday with these interviews to um, Kerry and Japan uh, while we're in a five kilometre uh, restriction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I felt I felt, uh, I felt the same. So let's start with Anna Murray. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's better. That's better. I'm just separating. And I spoke to Anna earlier in January over Zoom from her home in Tokyo, where she is finishing up a two year scholarship studying no theatre at Tokyo University of the Arts. So how are you? Yeah, I, uh, I'm pretty good. Sorry, I'm just finished work. So I'm, uh, During our conversation, Anna explains what no theatre is and why she is interested in it. And she also talks about some of the work she's produced while based in Japan including her recent releases, City Shadows, and these are the first words I've spoken. Here it is. Uh, I'm Anna Murray. I'm a composer from Ireland, currently living in Tokyo, where I'm studying no theatre. No theatre is a form of very traditional Japanese theatre. It's a little bit like kabuki. I think people are a bit more familiar with kabuki. 
uh, it's a little bit older and more formal. So it's quite related to Buddhist teaching as well. So it has this sort of more formal, more kind of courtly feeling to it. It's very slow and very meditative and very difficult to understand, even for Japanese people, because it's in this form of ancient Japanese that people don't speak anymore. But it's a form of theater that uses um, music and chanting and costume and visual elements uh, all together. So people kind of consider it a form of Japanese opera, even though it's very different in appearance. I am interested in text, so working with text and music. And it has a really close relationship right, with text. So the things that are performed now are the same pieces that were written like 600 years ago. And they were written with text and music and costume and everything were all created as part of like one piece. So I was really interested in how all that works together. You just mentioned that a lot of the works that were written over 600 years ago, the text and the, and the music is the same. So does that then mean it's a very constrained art form? As somebody described it to me once as a finished art form, it's sort of frozen as it was 600 years ago in its absolute form. Some performance things have changed. It's gotten slower. It used to be performed in a series of plays that would take all day. Now you're more likely to be able to see bits and pieces or a half a no or a full no. But most of no performance is still frozen as it was. Right, 600 years ago. They're very open to people taking ideas from No and toying with it and doing other different collaborations, but that's not really considered No. You use the word meditative in describing the art form itself. And you also mentioned text as well, that, you know, you're interested in text. But is the kind of meditative meditative aspect of No Theatre, is that something that kind of resonates with you musically when it comes to your own work? Absolutely. Uh, I think by meditative, that really comes down to this incredible slow speed. Almost nothing happens in a no play over the, the 90 minutes or however long it is. They're really still. They're these absolutely still performances. So that's where this meditative thing comes from. And I'm really interested in the way it plays with time and perception. One thing that's really interesting is if you go to see a no say in Japan, it's totally normal to see people fall asleep during it. And that's acceptable and normal. And it's actually almost considered a good thing if you know when to fall asleep and when to pay attention. So it's built into the sort of fabric of it to be this suspension of time and it's considered part of understanding it. How difficult has it been for you as a Westerner to immerse yourself in that world it's not considered important to understand all the words in no. That's part of the process. So no performers here usually start learning at the age of maybe three. They do the exact same process that I did when I came here. So you go to your chant class and you repeat what the teacher does. So when they're learning at three, four, five years old, they also, they have no idea what they're singing, right? They're, they're just repeating it. The most difficult part of it is it's taught in this extremely formal, traditional manner. It's very different to going to a piano lesson and navigating your way through that really traditional, very formal space when you come to it completely new is extremely difficult to get used to. Mm -hmm. 
the fact that you have been immersed in this for close to two years, I mean, what kind of effect has it had on your own composition work? Or or is it is it sort of too soon to say? The biggest thing that I'm feeling right now is that up until now, I didn't do much practical, like musical learning, like not since college, not since I played the piano. And my music creation has been on my laptop or I guess kind of divorced from the practical, physical aspect of music making to an extent. But for the first time, I've done vocal work, right? I spent two years doing vocals. And that is a completely new area for me. And not only vocals, but movement, which is something totally, totally new to me. I was always someone who was happier being, you know, off stage, right? behind everybody else, not in front. So this idea of sort of learning in this embodied way has been really new for me. So I think that's going to have quite a big impact on my music and how I think about it. I'm not sure what that effect will be yet, but I can already feel that's really changed how I feel about music and how I feel about making music. It's a more fuller physical connection with how you make music. Exactly. In the no class, there isn't an emphasis placed on explaining them. It's all about doing them until you understand it. After two years, I don't say that I would understand it really at all, but it's a definitely a more connection to the physical act of creating music. Once you understand it, then I'll explain it. (laughs) For now, just repeat after me uh, until you understand. It felt very alien to me at first, but it was really a rewarding experience to go through it. We've managed to talk for 15 minutes before mentioning the pandemic and its effects. So presumably this has curtailed a lot of the actual experiencing music live, meeting people and all the connections that one would make in, if, if you're settled in a particular place for a period of time. Yeah, hugely. I was only really beginning to understand how the city worked, really, by the time COVID-19 hit. I didn't really get much opportunity to get embedded in anything really when I was here. I mean, of course, it's so huge. I think it would take a really long time to understand in any case. My classes continued and I was able to keep studying. It meant not being able to go experience things live, right? So not being able to go to see no live and not being able to go to other concerts um, and follow on to that, of course, meet other people or play music with other people as well, of course. Uh, So that has really been the main impact. Looking at, you know, the music that you've produced over the last year or so whilst you were living in Tokyo, one of the albums that's on Bandcamp, these are the first words I've spoken. You refer to it as isolation electronica. That's quite striking a description. Is that part of what you were talking about? The fact that you haven't been able to connect as you would have anticipated, you know, before all this hit? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. When I was making that release, I was just experimenting with things. Right In a break from university, I think it might have been during summer holidays. And I thought I really need to, to take my mind out of this ancient chant for for a little while 
But also I couldn't escape this feeling of this incredible like, claustrophobia. So that's just kind of what kept coming up. I kept like adding things until it was like closing in and closing in and closing in. So I, it's not something I necessarily set out to do, but maybe it's what it ended up as. This really claustrophobic feeling. Uh, it probably helped me deal with that <laughs> for a little while. sort of topic of making work during you know such a huge thing in everybody's life it's kind of affected so many composers in 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 many different ways and and i think the the pattern that i've picked up on is is many people just haven't been able to create work because because they're faced with the usual stresses and and strains that we're all having to go through so therefore you're not going to feel very creative are you did you feel that way uh, for a time, though, I've been extremely lucky and I'm really aware of how lucky I've been, uh, you know, during this because I'm here and I'm supported with a scholarship to be here in order to study and make music, even though a lot changed in both the way I was living and sort of my experience of, of the city and things like that. I mean, I was still in the same position that I was in to be able to create music. I wasn't working towards concerts. I wasn't working towards something I was involved in. I was just kind of continuing in my own space and I was being supported to be in my own space. There have definitely been times where I didn't feel like exploring some things or other things, but I felt like I've been able to continue working on things. I think with that EP that you mentioned, that was probably a response to needing to change. So I think it wasn't so much a feeling that I couldn't create something, but that I needed to create lots of different things. I needed to be able to change. I needed to be able to take a break from No to work on electronica and then take a break from electronica to play the piano and then take a break from that to create some field recordings or something like that. You know, I'm in a position where I can fully dedicate my time to creating something and like everything, even though they're disparate areas of work are kind of feeding in together and influencing each other in different ways.
So tell me about your other latest release, City Shadows, because one of the things that strikes me about this is you mentioned field recordings and, and there's a lot of field recordings in that record because, you know, listening to it, I feel I feel I'm somewhere in Tokyo, <laughs> probably within a small radius of your of your apartment. Yeah, quite a small radius of my apartment, right? <laughs> I actually have been gathering recordings of different parts of Tokyo on and off over the last while, actually almost since we got here. Tokyo has a very unique sonic signature. It, it sounds very different to, to Dublin or it sounds very different to other European cities. I found that really interesting to explore, go to these different places to just kind of soak up what it sounds like. Even aside from making the field recordings, I think that just existing in a different sound world here is probably going to have quite an influence on other music that I make as well. But in this one, I was really trying to present some areas of Tokyo and just color them slightly, maybe with some kind of intervention. So rather than creating complex pieces out of the field recordings, just sort of present a kind of feeling that I had towards them. We're not quite locked down here, but this feeling of their kind of memories, because I don't get to go there as often as I would like. So they're a combination of places I live and a place that is like a memory to me at the same time. mentioned that Tokyo sounds very different to anywhere else. Is that something that your ears were always attuned to? I think I was to an extent, though maybe I wasn't as aware of it until I came here and realized how significantly different it was. Um, I, I grew up in Kasabar in Mayo and my, uh, my parents' house is outside of the town. So it was very, very quiet. And when I go there now, I just I'm so aware of how quiet it is. So even, say, Kasabar and Dublin have extremely different kind of sound signatures, even though I hadn't really thought of it in that way until I came here. Do you miss the silence? No, I like the sound. I like, I like uh, the life all around and things happening and the energy of it. I like. Although I, I would be happy with less traffic. Finally, as regards 2021, do you have any plans for more releases or, or other projects in the coming months? Well, by April, I will be finishing my research project. So I'm hoping to release in some way or another some of the results of my project. So I have a lot of different types of music that I've been working on to relate to know in different ways. And that I hope will include a short album of piano music 
uh, all things going well. And I'm considering toying with the idea of releasing some vocal music of my own, of myself singing for the first time, uh, some no related things. So I'm not sure about that. Yet. <laughs> but then after that, I've got a little bit of time uh, to kind of think about some more, let, let all the work I'll have done in the research project settle and see what comes up after that. Anna, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks so much, Jonathan. It was a lot of fun. Aura by Anna Murray, ending that conversation with the composer. Next, composer Sean O'Dolly, and it's interesting that the practice of field recordings cropped up in both your conversations with Anna and with Sean, Jonathan. That's right. Field recordings are a very important part of both composers' work, but they use it in very, very different and individual ways. Sean talks to me about how he uses field recordings that he's collected a few years back as a basis for instrumental works that he's been working on. And he talks about the whole process around this and some of the reasons for what is a new approach for him. Yeah, interesting when Sean talks about the element of surprise, isn't it, Jonathan? The the sculpturing, as he puts it, of the sound that he collects and then the element of surprise um, of sort of what the what the kind of final outcome might be. And I, I find that very kind of interesting, you know, hearing that from a composer. But again, back to the sense of place that Sean talks about and on his return from the Netherlands and really connecting with the, where he comes from in Kerry. And I remember... I remember um, Sean telling me a really a great story, Jonathan, about this workshop um, that he had with the, you know, very well-known, highly regarded Austrian composer Haas. And Haas had spent time in Kerry um, many, many years back. And when Sean told uh, Haas where he was from, well, there was this, this immediate enthusiastic response um, and a big encouragement from Haas uh, to Sean to um, yeah, keep going with that exploration of his connection uh, with his place through his music. So let's have a listen to my conversation with Sean O'Dolly now. I am Sean O'Dolick and I am a composer and sound artist from and currently based in Kerry. In September, I also started studying again. I am in the DMA, the Doctorate in Composition program in Stanford, California. So I'm currently dividing my time between uh, working and composing during the day and then attending kind of classes and meetings and stuff in California during the night. So splitting my time between the two of them. In terms of what I'm working on at the moment, I'm actually working on a couple of different things. The main piece that I would be writing at the moment is a solo cello piece. 
Uh, it's uh, I'm writing it for the American cellist uh, Seth uh, Parker Woods. It's um, actually part of a series of solo pieces that I've been kind of slowly tipping away on, but accelerating now. Uh, it's the second of them, the title of the, the set there, uh, Landscapes. So this is like the second landscape for cello. The first one is for flute. It's ongoing. It's for uh, Richard Craig. It was the, a commission for the Music Current Festival, which was meant to happen last year. Of course, that didn't happen. I was supposed to be in April last year. So yeah, that's this set of solo pieces is kind of ongoing. What connects those solo pieces? Why are you focusing on solo pieces? What's the link between them? The thinking around these pieces started over a year ago. I was kind of frustrated with maybe where I was at in my practice and what I was doing when working with musicians, writing scores for musicians. Um, and that kind of caused that kind of a narrowing in a way of what I wanted to focus on, which became just thinking of solo pieces uh, to really just kind of like focus in and think about just the instrument, just the musician and their instrument and my relation to that, as opposed to any more extra and complicated factors of having multiple musicians, multiple instruments, etc. It started from a kind of a, a point of frustration and then which started a period of reflection. Well, I mean, what does that mean concretely? It means that I wasn't actually writing any music. I wasn't actually actively writing or finishing music for, I'd say, a good period of six months. But I was really thinking about uh, practice as opposed to pieces. Does that make sense? Like thinking about what am I doing every day? What do I want to do every day? And kind of really thinking about it. And then I suppose more specifically further along, how are the solo pieces related? Why are they landscapes? Well, it's like, it, yeah, it is very much related to the idea of a landscape from visual arts. I also, I paint and very much amateur uh, photography as well. And so I'm very, I'm very much uh, like involved in kind of a visual practice as well, but it's more for myself as a kind of an exploration. But this idea of the landscape for the solo pieces is related to the idea of a landscape and visual arts. Uh, the process for them is taking recordings from my field recording practice, which I've been doing for the last like five years, which means I've amassed this giant mass of sound files on my laptop. I suppose I started to think about how do I deal with those? As in, what, do, what does this practice mean to me as this mass of sound files keeps getting bigger and bigger? The, the solo pieces themselves are actually transcriptions of selections of these sound files. That's how they're related, I suppose, specifically. The metaphor of the landscape then, as it transforms into a piece for a solo instrument, I suppose it's the way I think about instruments as physical objects. Thinking about them like in terms of their physicality, it's, I find it, I've always found that really inspiring. 
the different quirks and different characteristics uh, of an instrument, you know, different types of articulation and stuff like this is what fascinates and inspires me about instruments. So in a way, I think of an instrument as a kind of a landscape as well of all of these these materials, uh, like wood, metal and intestines, of course, in the old days, but also like repertoire an instrument and like human labor and all, all of these crazy things that in a way come together to form an instrument to me is like a landscape. Like it's not that I'm trying to represent the field recordings through the instruments as opposed to just like really interested in this translation where one energy in the practice becomes something else, if that makes sense. And how does that work? Like, I mean, you know, when, when you're talking about translating a field recording into a piece for a solo instrument and taking on board the properties of the instrument, the, you know, the, the physicality, as you say, of the instrument. How does that work in practice? Yeah, it's a good question. I've been, I suppose, going at this in a number of different ways. And in the final where I'm at now, where I'm just in the practice and working away on these pieces consistently, there is, I suppose, a kind of a set workflow zooming out a bit having this massive sound files, the reason that I'm dealing with them is because I became a little frustrated with how I was dealing in general, let's say field recording as a practice that when I moved back to Ireland from the Netherlands, where I was living for three years, uh, I was very much kind of into like, I was very much investigating place, um, my relationship to where I'm from. And that was uh, field recording practice, presenting those recordings as field recordings as these unedited kind of things. Uh, was very important to me at the time, but I became more kind of interested in this mass of sound files I had on the computer. They might contain one three minute kind of nicely positioned and, and edited field recording, plus, you know, two hours of dropping a microphone, testing the signal, mistake, quote unquote, kind of things. But I, I was kind of more interested in the mass, including all of those things. So, um, the first part of this process for the instruments involves me just wrote a really simple, tiny bit of software that just collects all of these recordings from hard drive and essentially makes a soundscape composition out of those, like a really, really dense overlaid recording of all of these hundreds of sound files. My job then is to go in and start hacking away at that, cutting, pasting, editing out things in a very intuitive way. It's filtering in a subtractive process that then I literally apply different filters to that as well. And at the end of this, you, you kind of get a soundscape, I guess, as I said, this layered recording, which then I attempt to translate or to transcribe, literally transcribe for instruments. The whole way along, it's like you have layered chaos on one side, and on the other side, you're conscious of this uh, instrument, a musician and somebody who wants to have a readable score. So you're kind of always conscious of these two points. But it is very interesting. There's different choices you can make that are more on the side of the chaos or more on the side of the instrument. For example, you're filtering your MIDI and you're like, well, I won't have a really, really, really low uh, C in the register of the lowest string of a cello because it's a piccolo. You know, when you make these decisions in filtering this chaos, I find really interesting. As I said, the representation of these recordings is, 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 is absolutely not the point. It's more an energy kind of transfer, if that makes sense.
In, in terms of that, you know, the exploration of those recordings that you would have made at a particular point in time where you were at a different, I guess, a different point in, in your practice, were you just blind capturing the audio environment of, wh- of where, you were, where you were based, not really knowing or not really discovering the things that you had discovered when it, when it came to working on these pieces? Yeah, there's a couple of things there that's really interesting. The first thing is just the act of going out with a recorder or any sort of recording device and headphones and pressing record and having your surroundings amplified, really like amplified and becoming this completely different sort of presence with the world around you. Because that's the first really huge discovery, I think, the discovery I made anyway, is this kind of heightened sense of presence when you are, are somewhere and then you're like, oh, I'm starting to hear all of these different things. Maybe the recorder is like uh, picking up the low frequencies in a way that you notice more than your raw hearing, let's say. So that's like the kind of first discovery. And then you quickly dis- quickly realize after that, that uh, regardless of having an amplification of your senses, that listening space is, is an intentional act that you could achieved by just you know at any point what like without amplification for me it was amplification was this first kind of step in inspiration uh, which kind of led me more into thinking about like my listening in an intentional way and just going out and having this listening practice not necessarily documenting it but just as you know as I'm going for a walk around the place um, and just stopping to listen and then I would say What's so strange about a recording is that you can uh, capture a place, an essence of a place, and then listen to it later at a different point in space and time, which is a very strange thing to do if you stop and think about it. Yeah, so when you do that, you might be like, oh, you know, I didn't actually hear or notice that when I was there, Uh, especially like if for me anyway, if if I do recordings, if I've ever recorded in a city, right, where where there is like lots of lots of uh, stimulating things visually and sonically and around you, uh, like there's a a whole lot to take in. And by listening back, you're like, geez, I, I never knew there was a little bird sitting on top of the train platform there you know like in this massive uh, chaotic environment so you know to just the, the fact of being able to re-listen to things is this huge thing of discovery but then as you're as you're as you're kind of asking with this practice is then by the the two things like t- taking all of these sound files as a mass regardless of my old old view or the view of there being like you know, oh, there's the good recordings and the mistakes on the memory card. First of all, you include all of these, uh, quote, mistakes, and then suddenly you're discovering new things there. And you're like, that's a completely new experience when I listen to like, you know, when you listen to somebody handle a microphone while they're recording, you're obviously listening to their presence. And then the final step of like mashing them all together and layering them 
uh, in different ways, of course, they contextualize each other. And then you another further layer of, of discovery. You know, put simply, is this whole kind of process that you're going through, is it really to sort of, you know, to be surprised by what's been uncovered when you hear these things juxtaposed against one another and then you begin by a sort of a subtractive process shaping those? 100%. Uh, yeah, and it's just something I've just been slowly realizing that I need. Like just having this kind of... um huge mass like of things being presented to you and then filtering and filtering subtracting uh, sculpting or uh, whatever metaphor of reducing uh, that we could use to kind of get to something the act this surprise is central for me yeah i mean this the practice with this uh, set of solo pieces is obviously kind of interpreting interpreting that in quite a literal way but yeah th- this idea of kind of setting up a situation and being surprised by it and, and then filtering or reaction, reacting to it is, is true for me in, in, in other ways I would go about other pieces. You know, I was going to finish off and ask you about what you have coming up. What are your hopes or your, you know, in terms of your projects, you know, looking, looking beyond this current period, like what do you, what do you hope to do? A very important part of my life for the last seven years has been like collaborative work. I've done a lot of work with artists and other disciplines. Primarily it was like working with uh, theatre and be it in a like soundtrack or sound design or uh, just a collaborative context. I've worked a lot with uh, director Espen Hjort, who's a Norwegian director based in Amsterdam. And when I moved home, I worked a lot with music ensemble, the Kirkas Ensemble, who were doing great things. And they were very supportive of me at that period when I when I came home. And through one of those collaborative projects, I met the choreographer Ruri O'Donovan from Cork, who is currently based on a Cape Clear Island. So the project that I'm kind of like that I've been working on is going to be uh, an opera. We funding from the Arts Council from the Opera Strand to do the research stage, let's say, together in July, which didn't happen. But I'm very excited because I get to bring together these friends and artists who I've been collaborating with uh, over the years. Uh, So there's Espen, theatre director, Ruri choreographer, there's uh, a singer, a poet, composer that uh, I've worked with a lot, uh, Sophie Fetokaki, who's based in Cyprus. Uh, there's Andrew Duggan, visual artist based down in Dingle, Mace Borgman, movement artist based in the Netherlands, and Yoon-hee Lee, who is a, a Korean-American violinist. So obviously this, we're all based around the world, so this project was kind of doomed uh, immediately last year but what we we've kind of been you know embracing this new format of we're each kind of working away ourselves and meeting up every couple of months for essentially for a book club and slowly working towards uh, this project which when it uh, happens will be a site-specific performance work on or near the Blasket Islands in Kerry so very excited about that. 
And do you know what the like what the subject of the opera is going to be about, or have you, or or is it just there are various ideas in in, in play at the moment? The thing is, we we all all of us. Uh, okay, I'm a composer. There's a violin player. There's a, a singer slash poet. There's a choreographer, a director, a movement artist, a visual artist. Like we all technically intersect with opera in our practices. Yet we would all individually feel like outsiders in that practice like we we don't know i guess a whole pile about it so at the moment the project is about us essentially seeing how uh, and if we can intersect with opera as a practice and then to take that very much outside where opera would normally live the blasket isles is pretty much about as far as you could get from the practice of opera and just to take that there and take us there and essentially uh, see what happens. What if a thing like opera sprung up on the blaskets uh, around us? What would that look like? Would it look like opera? Would it look like something else? John, thanks so much. It's It's been great talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me on, Jonathan. Yeah. Sean O'Dolly ending this episode of Amplify. My thanks to Keith Fennell for his editing and production support on this. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening.